Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today is Dr. Shannon Reed. Dr. Reed is the Associate Professor of Criminal Justice and Criminology at the University of North Carolina and is also the author of Alt-Right Gangs, A Hazy Shade of White. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, Shannon, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write Alt-Right Gangs? Sure. My background is in sort of a traditional criminal justice background, but what my interest was in looking at Alt-Right Gangs is when I was growing up, I was part of the punk scene, and I remember going to shows. I lived outside of New York and going to shows and seeing skinheads, racist and non-racist skinheads. But when I went to college and I went to grad school, it was basically that no one really cared about them. They weren't a thing anymore, right? So those Geraldo Rivero episodes didn't air anymore and war had been sued. And so I started studying street gangs. And so my PhD work is a lot on juvenile violence in correctional facilities, focusing on gang violence and working with LAPD in their gang unit. So really focused on gangs, uh, sort of traditional street gangs, like, you know, we think of in, you know, Boys in the Hood and things like that. And when we saw the sort of resurgence of what was sort of the rebranding of a traditional skinhead in, in groups like the Proud Boys, I decided that, you know, we had to stop ignoring these groups as gang researchers and really started pushing gang researchers to basically re-include or or not purposely exclude these groups from their studies. So I guess these groups that you're talking about, they're often viewed in academia and policing as being, I guess the new phrase is ideologically motivated violent extremists. Could you talk a bit about why they should be classified as gangs? So there's sort of two parts to that. And I want to be clear that when we talk about alt-right gangs, we are talking about the younger demographic. So, you know, the 12 to 24 age group versus, you know, the 40, 50, 60 year olds who are maybe joining, you know, a KKK or a more traditional older far right group. But so the reason we push back and I push back on the ideological focus is first is that it gives the groups and the individuals who are part of the groups too much credit for really being embedded in the ideology. So when you actually talk to a lot of youth about or young adults about 
you know, some of the conspiracy theories or what it means to, you know, understand Zog or every single time kind of these different things is that they really don't understand them at a level where they are motivating their behavior around them. So for example, I interviewed a youth in California, Youth Authority, which is now the Division of Juvenile Justice, who was a member of the Peckerwoods. And we asked, you know, what do you do with your your group? And he said, you know, we drink, we hang out and we do Hitler stuff. And that was sort of the moment for me where you sort of think like, okay, you know, they're using, using this symbology and this ideology as a way to make themselves stand out in a sea of gangs that they may not blend in, but they don't really understand or really adhere to it in a way, which is why we see, you know, groups like the Proud Boys have multiracial members or, you know, things like that. And and Nazi lowriders have Hispanic members is that they're really not so adherent to the ideology that it, it changes membership. But second is that it ignores the fact that there are traditional street gangs who also have ideologies. So the work of Brotherton has highlighted this, that, you know, uh, different gangs, you think about Latin Kings who now has church status in some places or MS-13, which started as a Salvadorian pride because the Mexican gangs wouldn't let them sort of be a part of that, is that, you know, we can't ignore the fact that traditional gangs have ideologies too. So we can't give credit to one group (laughs) and ignore the other group because it makes the groups who are sort of getting this credit as being ideologically motivated is that then you have to come at them from a de-radicalization point of view. And you're, you're missing a lot of the risk factors and a lot of the intervention points if you focus so strongly on the ideology. Why do you think it is that these white gangs are treated differently than uh, these other gangs? Well, part of it is that that is how American policing and American sort of, and not just America, but America is sort of the highlight of this, is that when people envision street gangs, what they have been, what the media has displayed, what police have, you know, pushed in their gang databases is that you're talking about minority youth. And so when most people think about, you know, a gang member in their head, they're picturing, you know, a young black male standing on a street corner selling drugs. And and that's who they think are gang members. And so when you talk to them about white gang members, what we've sort of seen is that when they go to intervene, so if they have a group of, say, Peckerwoods known in their community, a lot of times what we're seeing is that they look at those youth as if they are having a phase. So whereas a black gang member is considered kind of a criminal for life, a white gang member is having a, you know, a youthful indiscretion almost, right? And so they'll grow out of it. Even though we know gang members also leave the gang in about a year, they aren't given the same credit that the white youth are. And I think you have to remember that policing supports white supremacy in a lot of ways. And so if you have officers who, you know, don't necessarily disagree with what these youth are doing, their desire to intervene at a formal level is going to be less. I'm familiar, I think, with a lot of the gangs that you talk about in the book. Who are the Pickerwoods? <laughs> oh, sorry. I picked the worst one. 
Um, the Pecker Woods are just uh, a skinhead gang that have been around. Like they kind of like the Crips. It's sort of one of those terms that um, skinhead uh, racist skinheads kind of pick up, and so they're not related to other Pecker Woods, but it's just kind of a, a gang name that a lot of them use. And did they choose their own name? Uh, yes, it came out of. It has a history to it, but yes, they they refer to themselves that way. Uh, I think there's an opportunity for a rebranding exercise. There, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think that's what you know, like Neil Yannatis and those individuals, you know, and Richard Spencer. That's what they are trying to do, right? They don't want to be associated with with the sort of the historically violence and you know, sort of what they sort of referred to as foot soldier kind of blockheads, boneheads, as the anti-racist skinheads call them of of olden days. Shannon, the Proud Boys have undergone something of a meteoric rise over the past few years. How important do you think was President Trump's seeming endorsement of the gang? And conversely, now that he's out of office, has this fact decreased their appeal? So, yes, when we think about the way media plays into these types of groups, so the reason there are so many gangs that are called Bloods and Crips, even though they have absolutely no relation to each other, is because popular culture made those household names. And so it's a similar sort of trajectory for Proud Boys. So when he called them out and told them to sort of, you know, stand by, that gives them a level of legitimacy that basically people or, you know, youth and and other groups kind of pick up and take on that identity. So, you know, if, like, for example, there was a group of Proud Boys who were eating out at one of the restaurants in Charlotte, and there was a big fuss about it. But the sense, you know, isn't that they necessarily had any attachment to, like, a main, quote-unquote, Proud Boys leadership, but rather they know the outfit, they know the rhetoric, and they know if they go out that that's going to be picked up. And so they're taking that sort of street cred from Trump and from that being a, a known entity now. And as we think about Trump leaving, you know, there's been a few things about, you know, Canadian Proud Boys breaking up and, oh, the group's falling apart now that, you know, law enforcement is taking them more seriously. But the reality is they're just going to shift, right? So... The same way that a lot of Proud Boys are members of local skinhead gangs, they will either go back to that identity or it'll just become a new iteration of the same thing. We've also witnessed recently, particularly in regards to White Lives Matter, reportage documenting multiple links between the Proud Boys and neo-Nazi groups. On the other hand, seems to be the case that in the United States in particular, you have mainstream media outlets like Fox increasingly adopting what would otherwise be recognised as white nationalist rhetoric. So my question is, do you think the political lines between conservatism and fascism are blurring in the United States? I think if you consider what people are saying and how they are interacting with different groups, then yes, you know, we are seeing that influx of fascism in a way that we have not seen in a fairly long time. But I think the, the and I want to say like the alt-right and the alt-light, they have done a really good job of trying to 
bury the lead a little bit on their rhetoric, right? So although I think when you think about like Tucker Carlson and and some of those people, like there's no, the wheels are off the bus, right? Like (laughs) there's no pretending what he's saying isn't basically straight white nationalist rhetoric. But I think other groups and, and other news outlets have really, they've played up on that idea of being able to say, oh, we didn't know like that uh, plausible deniability, right? We didn't know that that's what that meant, or we didn't know that people were going to take it that way. And so they've been able to really kind of push this rhetoric in a way that has made it very palatable to people who probably, if you said that is a fascist comment, would be shocked or, you know, would be like, absolutely, it's not, right? They, you know, they've done a good job of getting my parents, our parents, right, whoever, you know, to really kind of buy into it in a way that is wrapped up in this conservative guise, but is really pretty straightforward white power language. We were discussing earlier the ways in which uh, alt-right gangs are the sort of the the general consensus is that people need to be de-radicalized and go through de-radicalization processes in the world of gangs. There's also exit programs, I suppose. Exiting a gang can often be fraught. How do exits from alt-right gangs differ from exiting other types of gangs? And also, in what ways are they similar? So that's, I mean, that's a huge question that we don't know a good answer to because the data we have right now is, so what we have is white power youth who are in these gangs who are going through gang sort of desistance programs and not being captured as what gang they're in. Cause we don't care. No one keeps track of it. So we don't, we can't separate that out. But a lot of the research on the, you know, sort of traditional far right has been focused on those de-radicalization programs like life without hate or life after hate, sorry. And, you know, sort of focusing on, but what we've noticed and when we talk to youth and when we, we sort of done this research is that, a lot of the risk factors that youth talk about are very similar. So when we talk about pathways to desistance, the more pro-social connections all of these youth can have, whether it's through new friends, getting a job, going to college, going to trade school, moving, right? Moving can be a huge (laughs) impetus to leaving a group because when we talk to, you know, especially gang youth, when they say they've left, a lot of times when we ask, well, who do you hang out with? It's the same individuals who they were in the gang with, because that's who they go to school with. That's who's in their neighborhood. And so it's, it's a complicated process where they kind of go back and forth a little bit because they say they've left, but as far as law enforcement or other gangs are concerned, they're still in, right? So there's, but if you move, if you're able to kind of move away from that, you're able to leave that, cut those ties a little bit more strongly. And I think that's probably true with the white power groups is that the more we are able to meet the needs of these individuals, then that is, you know, a better way than just focusing truly on just the de-radicalization. You're listening to Yana Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Shannon Reed about alt-right gangs. This is the bit of a simplification, and I know that there's a, a lot more to it, but there's a sense to some de-radicalization programs that a lot of it is sort of like, hey, fellow kids, 
didn't you hear that racism's not rad? I assume that um, uh, gang uh, assistance programs are a little more nuanced than that. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's because the research has been done there in a way that it hasn't been done with these other groups. And so, you know, a lot of money and a lot of effort has gone into gang intervention, gang prevention, gang suppression, because it was made, you know, back in the 80s, it was a huge focus. And so, you know, there's been a lot of research and a lot of effort in really understanding what people need to successfully leave a gang. And a lot of the work has been done where if, if there are no jobs, there's no incentive to leave. If there is no next step, there's no incentive to leave. If you never leave the community, there's no incentive to leave. And so if you can't meet those needs, your desistance efforts are going to fail. And so you know, I think that with the push is to say, oh, if you just hang out with more black people, you won't be racist, is not meeting those needs, right? A lot of these youth aren't joining because they really care about a Jewish conspiracy or are anti-black but this group meets a, a basic need uh, that they meet. Well, it meets, I don't want to say that way, but it meets their basic needs. And that's why you also see switching, right? These individuals will go from non-racist skinheads to racist skinheads back again. Whoever's kind of filling a void is, is going to get their quote unquote loyalty, even though none of them are terribly loyal to gangs or far right gangs. But so yeah, you, you need that nuance at a way that we don't have right now with far-right groups, younger far-right groups. Because what works for a, a 19-year-old is probably not going to work for a 50-year-old. It's a different situation. In terms of the Proud Boys in particular, while you've discussed youth drivers in participation in gangs, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, perhaps you could correct me, but the Proud Boys also attract an older demographic older men who aren't necessarily unemployed or economically precarious. So I'm wondering if you could comment on the appeal of the Proud Boys to men outside of these marginal populations. Sure. You know, I think a lot of it, there's been a a fair amount of research thinking about how shifts in masculinity and and sort of uh, the promise of a better tomorrow has, when we think about a lot of minority communities and this sort of idea of the American dream is that a lot of communities know that they're never going to have the house with the two and a half kids in the car. And that was never even an option for them, right? Survival is, is their goal. And so gangs offer them money. They offer the protection, even though they don't necessarily actually offer those things. They offer the promise of them in a way that makes it appealing. And so now what we're kind of seeing is that for these other populations that have traditionally, if not actually been able to kind of reach that quote unquote American dream, have at least continued to believe it was possible. And now it is becoming more clear that that's really not accessible to everybody in the way that we have been told. And so groups like the Proud Boys offer a very clear reason why you're not reaching your full potential. It's because of feminism. It's because of multiculturalism. It's because of immigration, right? So they can kind of go through and give you 
uh, a reason why you're not reaching, you know, the, the potential you feel is due to you that's been told to you without it being the fact that it was always kind of a lie, right? That, that pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. So, you know, Proud Boys can say, you did pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You did it, but guess who blocked you? It's the liberals. It's women. It's, you know, it's these other groups. that, And that gives members, especially maybe older members who are acutely aware of this fact that they are not in the position they thought they were going to be in, a outlet for that disappointment or what we call strain too. Shannon, you've written that white power groups sometimes bond more over their willingness to engage in violence than their ideological unity. I'm wondering if you can comment a little more on the ways in which violence and violent rhetoric serves to bind together the men who are attracted to these groups. Yeah, so this has been a big portion of the gang literature as well, is this idea that so that violence plays a critical role in identity and group creation. It's a very good way to create in-group and out-group sort of designations. And so if you've ever listened to Gavin McInnes when he was on Joe Rogan's show, he talks about, you know, sort of, A, he calls them a gang, and B, he says, you know, there's steps. And the steps are you commit a crime, you get kind of, he's, I don't know if he says jumped in, but he said you get into a fight with, you know, you have to prove yourself. And that violence is both physically allowing them to say, okay, you are, we're part of this group now, we're bonded by the sense of almost hazing, right? But also it helps create mythology. So as these stories are told and retold, it's almost like a game of telephone. And so they are able to build reputation both on and offline by the retelling of this violence. And so were you there? Were you not there? Who saw it? What happened? Right? It becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that reputational sort of growth helps build that group adhesion. And so if you're really not willing to be violent on any level, then you aren't part of that sort of group in a way that everybody else was willing to be. And you could even, you know, sort of consider it the same as, you know, sorority or fraternity hazing, that that can get exceptionally violent and dangerous. And it's sort of like, oh, but that's how we come together and you pass the test is that now we're all bonded by this shared pain. And so that is appealing. And, you know, their adoption of, even though they missed the point of the movie Fight Club, right? It's that same sort of feeling of like proving your masculinity and being able to say that you are part of something that you had to get, it was tough to get into. Even though if you watch some of the videos of the, you know, jump-ins, they're rather sad, but that that's sort of the idea is it builds this this group dynamic and that group dynamic is immensely powerful as it influences future behavior uh, shannon i was wondering how would you compare the you know these old right gangs of today that we see to say supremacist gangs in the past uh, has there been a, much of an evolution yeah there has been i think a lot of the evolution has been a bit of a marketing evolution <laughs> of just this idea of, and the online platforms have really done a good job of giving a sense of legitimacy to what are essentially very similar groups. 
in the sense that they now are on, they're not a sideshow. So like back in the 80s and 90s, they were kind of a sideshow. You know, you brought them on and they said terrible things and, you know, their fight would break out. But now you're, since you're seeing the mainstreaming of it, you know, a lot of those groups are able to sort of use that in a way that is trying to move away from the sort of like the violent street thug American history X kind of image. That doesn't mean that's working for everybody. And we've even seen, so like Adam Waffen division has been, you know, in the news a lot as a sort of, you know, highly organized or the base or these sorts of groups. And when you actually look at the age of these individuals and you look at their crimes, a lot of the crimes are not hate crimes. They're not, you know, accelerationist crimes. They're domestic crimes. They are drug crimes. So we're seeing a lot of the same behaviors. It's just the way it's kind of being talked about is less of this sort of feeling of, Oh, they're they're just you know kind of the 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 boot stompers beating people up at shows, but now there's a sense of like oh they're organized they're they're you know gonna try and take down infrastructure, but that doesn't match what's really happening in most cases. It's interesting you mentioned the base. There was recently some reporting here on uh, some of the people that tried to join the base in Australia. I think what you were saying earlier about ideological commitment sort of fits because uh, there was a few of them where they hadn't really done the reading uh <laughs> there are, have you you know have you read this seminal text or that one it's like oh i've got an audio book of it i was going to get around to yeah i mean basically like i think if you quizzed any one of them on the turner diaries they'd probably tell you what whatever was on the back of the book right so january 6 obviously was a, a bit of a big day in the united states <laughs> yeah. i did a lot um, of interviews that day what what was your understanding of the insurrection so I think the insurrection was a really interesting, it, it sort of had, was reminiscent of Charlottesville in the sense that people were very surprised by what happened and it should not have been so surprising. I mean, we had Trump coming out and, and sort of rallying them and you had a conglomeration of a lot of different groups sort of coming together in a very chaotic way that once you sort of get that forward momentum and, and, you know, you saw a lack of law enforcement intervention. And so things that were not accessible during the black lives matter protests were let open during the January 6th protests. And so this idea of sort of differential policing, whether or not it's because they thought this group was going to be calmer. I don't think there's been any indication that, these rallies have been calm previously, but I think it was eye-opening in the sense that there were, I think people didn't realize how many different factions there are at play in the sort of far right sphere. I mean, you have the groups like the Proud Boys, you have Patriot Prayer, you have other militia groups, you have, you know, the anti COVID people, you have the conspiracy people, you have the Groypers, the Manosphere, you know, you just had such a mix of people and organizations that the chaos of it all, I think, was sort of shocking to people. And the images of, you know, the shaman, that guy looked like 
you know, okay, that made sense maybe to people he, you know, but who people who looked like sort of your neighbors, I think was sort of surprising <laughs> and through people in a way that, cause we do keep having this image, right? Especially if, even if we think about QAnon, that the images it's, oh, it's that neighbor down the street. It's my uncle. We don't talk to, it's my aunt who posts all this stuff on Facebook. But the reality is this is infiltrating a lot of families and groups in a way that it has not previously. In terms of the Proud Boy participation on January 6th, we've seen a range of prosecutions subsequently, including of Proud Boy leadership. What's your understanding of the specific contribution made by Proud Boys to that event? Well, I, I sort of hesitate to give them too much credit because it gives them credit for a level of organization that I don't really feel like they have. But they have a name recognition that brings people willing to uh, sort of take on that label into these kinds of spaces. So I don't think it was organized in the way that they were able to kind of get all the Proud Boys, you know, send out a message that's like rally the troops in a sort of very organized way. But I think because they like to show up to these events, because there's going to be media attention, there's going to be a chance of violence, they want their name and their faces out there, that that is a, a, a draw. You know, so it's that's what's pulling different Proud Boys in these groups to these places, not necessarily like a true organizational push to, to be there and be present. One of the more serious consequences of January 6th, in Canada at least, was that the Proud Boys were prescribed as a terrorist entity. I was wondering if you could comment on whether you felt that that was an appropriate measure and what effects you think it might have. So I do not think it was the right measure, the right step. I I mean, I appreciate the sense that they are taking it seriously, but I think when we think about the day-to-day and the reality of who these groups are and what it means to be a terrorist organization is if I think about the, you know, city of Charlotte and we, and I, and I went to CMPD and I said, you know, do we have any terrorist organizations here? They will go, no. And then if I say, do you have a group of proud boys? They'd say yes, but they're just hanging out. They're not doing anything. So <laughs> I think it's an easy way for local law enforcement to push the problem to the federal level. And I think that's where we end up missing a lot of lower level crime and lower level behavior that could be intervened on earlier to prevent those more serious things from happening later. And has January 6th made much of a difference to the policing of white gang activity, have you seen? Again, I think federally, there's been some lip service towards it, right? Uh, We've seen different like and I the National Institute of Justice put out calls, but there's still a lot of both sides isms to those. You know, they want to know about left and right extremism. But I think at the local level, there is still a a misunderstanding about what they're supposed to be looking for, in the sense that because we have pushed them as these ideologically driven, you know, organized groups that at a local level People probably aren't seeing that. And so if they're not seeing it, they're not going to be keeping track of it. And there's still a sense that gang members are 
minorities, you know, so to overcome that is is very hard. Shannon, I guess just finally, what has the response to the book been like from, uh, I guess, from academia, law enforcement, whoever? Is, does it? Do you think it's going to make an impact? I certainly hope so. I mean, we've written, Matt and I have written a number of op-eds, and I've had to shut my phone down because <laughs> I was getting some fairly awful uh, voicemails. And, you know, I think our hope with the book is, you know, the scholarly response has been good. I mean, there's there's always pushback from sort of traditional gang scholars and traditional far right scholars that we are muddying the water a little bit. But, you know, I think that's our goal is to try and get people to rethink how we are talking about these groups as not a monolithic far right, but rather different subsets who can be dealt with differently. And so I think, you know, as we move forward, if we don't make the mistake that we made in the 80s and 90s of assuming that now that Trump is gone, that these groups are gone. If we sort of continue with this, you know, okay, we need to keep an eye on this, we need to keep studying it, we need law enforcement to pay attention to it, then my hope is this book will sort of help us reframe how we think about, especially, you know, the, the more active street level groups, whether that's Proud Boys or whatever iteration they come up with, or whatever group happens to be next, because that's who we're seeing out on the streets and in bars and pubs and things like that it is these groups. And when you see, when I see a 3% or sticker on somebody's truck, uh, you know, I feel like, okay, somebody should be paying attention to this, right? Why, why are we seeing this all over our city right now? And so that, that's sort of the goal. That's my hope is it, it keeps the dialogue going. Well, Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. The book is called Alt-Right Gangs, A Hazy Shade of White, and people can also follow you on Twitter at Morning Shannon. That's morning with the goth spelling. <laughs> it gives you a sense of, uh, yeah, my self-identity right there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. Yet again, Ken. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. On Thursday, the 20th of May, Wyndham Humanitarian Network is holding a free Bring Your Bills Day in Wyndham Vale. Members of the community who have had questions about bills or debts can attend the event to speak to lawyers, financial counsellors, ombudsman schemes and other community organisations. The event will run from 11.30am to 7.30pm on Thursday the 20th of May at the Warangal Darung Centre at 19 Communal Road, Wyndham Vale. Wyndham Vale Humanitarian Network is a 3CR supporter.